kind of a homecoming for me. In uh, 1980, I did my first public presentation. I went to a speaker meeting, and the speaker didn't show up. And uh, my sponsor decided that that was a sign from somebody's higher power that I ought to speak. <laughs> He's the man who told me that the third step was do what you're told for the first year. So I did. And I checked the podium out first because the podium that they had had only three legs on it. And so when I hung on to it and was shaking, the microphone started shaking and it amplified it, which, of course, amplified my anxiety. And so I dove right in and told my whole story, you know, what I, what I was like, what happened, and what I was like now. Sat down pretty proud, and my sponsor leaned over and said, well, normally people tend to speak for about an hour. And I said, well, how long has it been? And he said, three minutes. <laughs> so I went back up and really had nothing else to say. So I said, well, how about if you all break into small groups and discuss the impact of this? And sat back down. <laughs> I will not do that to you tonight. I had a little more notice. What I want to start out talking about is I, I want you to think about the human brain because that's the, the uh, main organ we need in relationships. And start out thinking about the brain as a prioritizing device. Right now, your brain is being bombarded with information. And hopefully your brain is prioritizing that and saying, the sound of that guy's voice is more important than the sight of the back of the person's head in front of you. Okay? And that there is so much information going on that it has to be organized in various levels of consciousness. The first level of consciousness is the conscious mind, what you're aware of being aware of. If you have a computer, it's what's on your screen at the moment. And then there's your subconscious mind, which is what's on the disk on your computer that you can bring up if you want to. Like most of you, I hope, are not paying attention to the sensation of your left foot. But of course, as soon as I said that, you became aware of the sensations in your left foot. But then you decided, well, that's not very important, and you went back to paying attention to my voice. Then you've also got your unconscious, which is the software that runs your program. That the uh, That's the stuff that... You, are, you have a hard time being aware of. For example, if, if you don't speak German and I say Speckendi die Deutsch, you hear, you hear the sounds. You don't hear the words. But by, if you speak English, you can't hear the sounds that I'm making as sounds. You can only hear those as words because it's become un unconscious. You don't have to translate English. It's automatic. Now, another function of the brain is it's a pattern-seeking device. Human beings love patterns. Now, one reason for that is if, if something's unfamiliar, if it's not part of a pattern, then we may not know how to behave. So we're constantly looking for patterns because then we believe we know how to behave. Now, that's very useful because you don't want to have to be cluttering up your conscious mind by constantly having to figure everything out. Like, I had never been in this room before tonight, but when I walked into the room, I automatically knew those things were chairs. I didn't have to stop and say, well, let's see, they've got legs, they don't have arms, they have a back. That's chair-like. Okay? I didn't want to be mucking up my mind with that. It was instantaneous. I saw chairs. Okay? 
Now, I don't remember the first time that I learned that something that looks like that is a chair. And I bet you don't know, remember either. But there was at one time in your life when you didn't know that was a chair. You had to learn that that was a chair. Now, at the same time you were learning that that was a chair, you were learning about relationships. And you don't remember all of that consciously either, but it affects how you behave. And that's what we're going to explore for a while. Okay. Once you start thinking about habits, habits are behaviors that you do without thinking about it. Okay, so let's do a habit right now. Fold your arms for me. Okay? Okay? Now look down and see how you fold your arms. Okay? Now what I want you to do is just reverse it. Okay? You see how hard that was? Okay? Now look at me. See, I don't have any trouble doing that. How come? Because I practice. Because I use this all the time as an example to explain this to my clients. Okay? Now, the first time I did it, I did the same thing. I whacked myself in the face trying to figure out how to tie my arms back up. Okay? But every time I unconsciously cross my arms without thinking about it, I cross them like this every single time. That's my habit. Okay? Now, what's an attitude? An attitude is a mental habit. It's something that you think without deciding to think it. It's automatic. Okay? All right, now, that helps explain the reason the character defects are so difficult to change is because they're automatic. Okay? That you do this thing without thinking because you've always done it that way. And if you want to change this, you have to think about it. And you have to practice doing it differently. And how many times do you think it would take before this one seemed natural? It'd take a lot of times, wouldn't it? And so you have to keep practicing. Now, what I'm proposing is that everybody who comes into a couple brings with them character defects. All right. Now, part of this unconsciousness is that you construct a model of the world. So think about a globe and a map are both models of the world. And which one is a better model depends on what you're trying to accomplish. If you're trying to get from here to Duluth, probably a folding map is better, a better model than a globe. But if you're trying to figure out where Argentina is, probably a globe is a better model. But you have to remember that a model isn't the real thing. A model is a small version of the real thing. How I remember that is, I had my first supervisor when I worked in chemical dependency, it's time for my, uh, my three-month review for my first job, and I, uh, in my grandiosity, I figured that I knew more about uh, recovery from alcoholism than these people who had been doing it longer than I had been alive. And that was showing. And my uh, supervisor wrote on my evaluation, you are a model counselor. And I was beaming with that. And he said, go look in the library, in the dictionary. And he had left a little piece of paper in there, and he had highlighted, model, small version of the real thing. <laughs> Okay? So your model is a small version of the real thing, too. Okay? And it's, it's just, if you want to have some humility, you have to remember that. That your model is just a model. It isn't the truth. Okay, so part of what you have to do, then, is to make these things conscious. And that's one thing you get from going to meetings, is that you, you say your thoughts out loud, you hear other people's thoughts, and that sometimes what happens is information that you get 
doesn't fit your model, if you never get confused, you never change. Because in order to change, you have to be confused. Something coming in doesn't have to, can't fit your model. That gets your attention. You either have to reject the information, say, well, this isn't accurate information, or you have to change your model. Okay? My, my grandmother has a model of, uh, humankind which includes that certain racial groups are lazy and irresponsible. Okay? And I learned after a while that it didn't do any good to give her new information. And we'd pull up to a stoplight and I'd say, well, that guy over there doesn't look lazy and irresponsible. Look, he's driving a Volvo. She'd say, oh, must be a pimp or drug addict then. Okay? Drug dealer. Okay. So that information would come in. She'd say, oh, that doesn't fit. Oh, reject the information. Don't change the model. So if you get confused today, then I'm doing my job. (laughs) All right. So now most of us assume that our models are correct. That we don't, we don't challenge them. So where I grew up, in my family, the evening meal was called dinner. And it happened at 5.30. I figured, and what I believed was that everyone on the planet was having dinner at 5.30, except Walter Cronkite, who I figured had a sandwich under there and was eating it <laughs> on breaks. Because everybody in the world eats dinner at 5.30. When I got a little bit older, and a friend of mine invited me over for, he called up and said, come on over for supper. Which I had no, I, I, the only time I had ever heard that word was in church. He goes, was the last supper. Okay? <laughs> so I thought this was some kind of a religious celebration. Okay? So I went to my mother, and I said, you know, is it okay for me to go to supper at Glenn's house? And she said, sure. And I said, well, what's it going to be like? She said, it's going to be like dinner. Which I was kind of disappointed. Well, I said, why doesn't he just call it dinner then? She said, well, some people call it that. So I went over there at what time? 5.30, exactly, because everyone in the planet, we all know, eats at 5.30. And I knock on the door, and Glenn's mother says, what do you want? And I said, I'm over here for dinner, I mean supper. And she said, well, then come back at supper time, and she shut the door. <laughs> so I have no idea, where do you go to find out when this is? Okay. And she's standing there saying, everyone on the planet knows that supper time is at 7 o'clock. What is wrong with this kid? Okay? Now, that's, that's funny when you're a kid. It's not so funny when you're grown-ups and you come together and you have your two models and you assume your model is better than the other person's model. Which leads us to uh, the idea of conflict. This is one way to understand couples. Okay? It's not as complex as it looks. Okay, one thing, one characteristic is how adaptable a person is. How easy is it for them to change? Character defects are character traits taken to extremes. Okay? So that if you are chaotic, that means you change too easily and you don't know who the person is. If you're rigid, you've probably heard that word a couple of times in meetings, huh? You don't change even when you ought to change. Okay? So that's one area that a couple can have conflict in, is you can have one person who says, I know the right way, all other ways are wrong, and then you can fight about that, or you can have people that are so chaotic that they don't know what they think is right. Okay, now the other way that people can have conflict is in cohesion here, which is how easy it is 
how, how much psychological space you want. Okay, so disengaged are people that uh, you call up and you say, you know, the husband answers the phone, you say, hi, is your wife home? And he says, I don't know. You say, well, do you know where she is? No. you know when she'll be back? No. Okay, that there's not much relationship there. There, there are individuals. I used to be a wedding photographer, and uh, these are the people that didn't light the unity candle. You know, they have two candles burning and no third candle. Okay? <laughs> then there's enmeshed people. And these are the people that have the two candles, they light the unity candle, and then blow out the other two candles. Because they become one. Okay? The people in the middle, these people in here, are the people that have the, un- have the candles, light the unity candle, and leave the other two burning, because there's a relationship and two individuals. Okay? Well, the most enmeshed family I ever saw was I was working with a couple, they were getting ready to get married, and they said, well, we're getting married next week, and so we won't be coming in, and then the following week we'll all be on our honeymoon. And it wasn't y'all, wasn't, they weren't from the South, it was we all. And I said, well, who all is going? <laughs> and they looked at me kind of like, you know, the usual people. I said, well, to you, what is the usual people? They said, well, you know, me and my wife, and her parents, and my parents, and my brothers and sisters. They went everywhere together. They, all of them owned 12 passenger vans, and everywhere that they, they traveled in this pack. Okay? So the fights are going to be about, about cohesion, right? If you get somebody from, that's disengaged, hooking up with somebody that's enmeshed, they're going to be fighting about how close they are going to be. Okay? So here's an example is, you get somebody from, um, an enmeshed family and somebody from a disengaged family and they get together. Okay, so at the end of um, the meal, the husband gets up and he goes and sits down and starts to read. And the wife comes over and sits on the same piece of furniture, touching him, and turns the TV on. Okay, and he looks over at her, thinking how rude she is, gets up and goes in the other room. And she thinks, oh, he's moving because the light's better in that room. So she unplugs the TV and rolls it into the room and plugs it in and sits down next to him. And he says, I'm trying to read. And she says, oh, that won't bother me. Okay? Okay? Because he came from a family where after dinner, everybody went to a different floor of the house and then would yell good night. Okay? She came from a family where everybody went into the same room and a couple of them were playing cards and somebody was watching TV and somebody else was yodeling and they were all doing it in the same room and they could block it out. Okay? So she thinks that he is rejecting her and he thinks that she's a leech. And based on their systems, they're both right. See, that's always the problem. They come to me and say, which one of us is right? You both are. That's the problem. Okay, so what you can think about is where you and your partner are on this. You know, if you're in here someplace, that's great. If you're on some of the extremes, then you're in trouble. And that's where you're going to want to work on four, five, six, and seven. Those steps. Okay? All right, now let's talk about the concept of attachment, because that that affects the way relationships work. Basically, attachment is a way of it, of how you handle emo- emotionally distressing situations. And where that comes from is watching kids interact with caregivers. 
Okay? And you say, now what does this have to do with adults? Because this is the first relationship that you learn. And this is the model that you have in your head. And then you take that model with you wherever you go. Okay, so in when children are with a caregiver, when they have a sense of safety, they're free to go out and explore the environment. And you can see little kids do that. They'll look back and see if the parent's there. And if the parent's paying attention, they, they go a little bit farther. But if the parent's distracted, not paying attention, the kid starts coming back. And they come over and touch them or yell at them or, you know, pay attention. Okay? When the child is threatened, the child comes back to the parent for protection. Okay? That's the idea behind it. So the threats can come from externally, you know, a loud noise or something like that, or they can come internally. I just, a friend of mine was just talking about his son had his first ice cream headache, okay, where he ate ice cream too fast and his, and his head started hurting. Well, it scared him because he suddenly was in pain. So he dashed to his father, who held him and made the pain go away. That's what it looked like anyway. You know, if he'd stayed away from his father, the pain would have gone away too. But if he was going to be in pain, he might as well be with his dad. He might as well, you know, when I worked in detox and we would tell people it's time to go to a meeting, they'd say, I'm going to throw up. You know, I want to stay in my room. We'd say, oh, you might as well throw up in a supportive environment, okay? <laughs> go where people are paying attention to you. Okay, so when the child runs to the parents or the caregiver, the, the child learns two things. One, the child learns, how likely are people to give me support and protection and reassurance when I want it? If I just ask for it, do I get it? Do I have to do something to get it? Is it even available? That's the first thing they learn in their model of the world. The second thing they learn is, am I a worthwhile, lovable person? If I am, then people will want to take care of me and will care about my pain and will want me to be happy. Okay, so that's the beginning of a relationship model, a relationship with self and a relationship with others. Okay, so the fancy terms are that attachment is about experience with caregivers in terms of their responsiveness to crying. What does the caregiver do when the child is in pain? Do they try and shut him up? Do they tell them they're bad or they should grow up or big boys don't cry or there's nothing to cry about? So they're learning lessons about emotions. They uh, learn how sensitive the parent is. You know, does the parent, does the child have to scream in order to get attention or can they just be sad and the parent notices that? How cooperative is the caregiver? Does, does the caregiver put other things first? You know, that if you fall and hurt yourself, does your caregiver clean up the, you know, what you spilled and then take care of you or take care of you and then worry about the mess? So what I want you to do is think about your your early experiences, and of course a lot of them aren't going to be conscious, but to think about how you saw your parents interact with siblings or how they interacted with grandchildren gives you some hints about that. Okay. So let's talk about different attachment styles, and I'm going to give you a handout on this, so you don't have to see all of that. Actually, I'm not going to. 
There we go. Here's the uh, here's the rest of them too. Thud. Okay. See now you'll have something to carry away with you. All right. So here's three different attachment styles. The secure one is that when a caregiver is available and warm and responsive, you end up with a child that actively explores and is able to acknowledge distress and seek comfort because it's available when they look for it. They have a long attention span because they're not busy worrying if the well has gone dry. They know that the, the parent is available to them. They have low levels of distractibility. They can focus on what's interesting because they're not freaking out about uh, the parent being gone. They have a low need for discipline because they have such a supportive environment. They're not interested in rebelling against it. They have an ability to play because they have a sense of safety. They have autonomous problem solving because they know that if they need help, the parent will come to help them. They won't take it over, but they will come help them. And they'll leave them alone when, when they need to be left alone. They have open and effective communication because they get, that's what they're being taught. And that they have an empathic response, meaning that they know how they feel and they know how other people feel because that, that is a feeling interaction. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Okay. That would be, a, that's the ideal is to have a relationship like that with a caregiver. Now, if you end up with a caregiver that's rejecting rigid and hostile, like, for example, an active alcoholic, you end up with a child that's detached and avoidant, is kind of afraid to come around the parent. They're, they have restricted willingness to acknowledge distress to others and to themselves because it doesn't do any good to acknowledge it because they don't get support that they are uh, have trouble seeking assistance from others because what they've learned is it doesn't at, at best you don't get anything and at worst you get in trouble for doing it so they end up hostile and non-compliant okay if you have an anxious ambivalent child that probably comes from an insensitive intrusive and inconsistent caregiver so the, although the child will protest any separation from, from the parent, they're also hypersensitive to their unpleasant emotions, and they tend to have a high expression of, of, defend, of distress. Okay? Now imagine if you get a couple that's made up of somebody that's avoidant and somebody that's anxious and ambivalent. Think of the struggles you're going to have. This person is going to constantly be looking to this person because they're so anxious, and this person's going to be walking away. So they're going to end up chasing each other through time with one person backing up and one person constantly advancing. So what kind of adults do you end up with? The research says that people that are secure have high job satisfaction. They're confident that they're valued. How come they're confident that they're valued as workers? Because they, they go to work already thinking that they're worthwhile people. So they assume that people will like them. They're surprised if someone doesn't like them. They uh, don't worry about failure because if they fail, they can you know say, oh, made a mistake, seemed like a good idea at the time, but they realize that their worth isn't based on what they do. Their close relationships don't interfere with their work relationships and, and their work doesn't interfere with their close relationships. 
And what they like to do with their time off is they like to socialize with other people. That's their favorite thing. Now, if you get somebody that's avoidant, they tend to grow up to be somebody with high job satisfaction because that's how they get their their worth. These are the people that say, thank God it's Monday. Now I can go back to work where I, where I can be successful. And I don't have to do this whole family thing that I don't know how to do very well. Okay, so they prefer to work alone. They emphasize work success over relationships. They use work to avoid socializing and to avoid their close relationships. And so they tend to work compulsively. And even when they have free time, they look for work or they make work. They take a project on. My uh, An example of that, that um, a friend of mine uh, lives on a 20-foot boat. And he's, do- he's docked at this uh, marina next to a guy that has a 60-foot boat. And uh, one day we went out, uh, I went out to visit him, and we were sitting on the boat and had some burgers on the grill, and we're sitting there talking and laughing, going for a swim. And there's this, there's this guy, and he's got this little uh, drummel tool, which is a little like a little drill with a bit on it, and he's sanding rust off of the railing on this thing. And, you know, we're having our burgers and swimming and laughing and joking around. It wasn't amusing. He's buzzing away, taking his rust off, you know, and we offer him a burger. Oh, no, i got to keep working, and he keeps working. And, I, and so after a while, we went over and we're looking at this boat. It's a beautiful boat. I says, uh, what does a boat like this go for? And uh, he says, uh, about $300,000. I said, does the guy pay you good? He says, what do you mean? I said, does the guy that owns this boat, does he pay you good for cleaning it up? He says, I'm the guy. And I said, well, you know, I've been coming out here all summer, and I've never seen you take this boat out. He says, oh, yeah, I never do. I never, I haven't gotten fixed up yet. I said, well, you, you, you bought it used, and you're fixing it up? Oh, no, it's new. And then it suddenly said, this is not about this boat. This is about avoiding relationships. Now, he can say, honey, i got to go work on the boat. And, you know, with a boat that size, he'll always be working on it. Okay? And he can justify that because he's doing something worthwhile. If he was just sloughing off, well, that'd be a different thing. So he's making work. Okay, people that are anxious, ambivalent, have low job satisfaction because they believe they're underappreciated by others. They're always worrying about their job performance. They have trouble completing tasks because they're so busy paying attention to if people are paying attention to them. They slack off after praise because what they're interested in in going to work is getting praise, not in getting the job done. And that they're preoccupied with their work relationships and they're preoccupied with their home relationships so they don't really have any time for work. Because they tend to see work as a way to meet unmet, unmet attachment needs. They're not there to get the job done. They're there to get relationships. They're trying to be one big happy family instead of a workforce. And uh, their favorite, uh, favorite off-time thing tends to be shopping. Okay, so now what I want you to think about is what your attachment style is. And obviously, these are not rigid categories. You can have some, you can kind of be in the middle there. But I want you to think about, you know, when stressed, which one do you tend to do? Okay, now let's talk about different kinds of conflict. The first, t- the first level of conflict is when the partners can remain 
relatively focused on themselves and take responsibility for their own actions. These are the people I don't see. Okay? Because they take responsibility for themselves and work on it. Okay? Then you get people that are in active conflict, but this tends to be, this, you can only maintain this stage for about six months. They're still able to have fun together, and they're willing to be a little open to doing things a different way. But they, they're, they're really, the conflict is getting serious. And uh, this is, the conflict at this stage is usually around developmental tasks, like buying a house, having a kid, moving, some big thing happens, and it shakes them up. And if they do it right, then they work through the conflict and they have a stable relationship. If they don't do it very well, then they go to the next stage. Okay? But at this the stage we're talking about, they still have communication, but they're starting to withhold their personal thoughts and feelings because they're afraid they're going to get used against them. Their coping skills just aren't working the way they, are, they used to, and they don't know what to do. Okay, the problem, see, remember what I said about your, you have your model and then you have this information coming your way, and if the information doesn't fit the model, you either have to change the model, which is hard, because that's admitting that you don't know everything, or you have to reject the information, okay? So you, you know the saying about if you see everything as a nail, you know, then what you, what you do is hit it, hit it with a hammer, okay? Which, it, which doesn't always work. But if you're not willing to question your model, you just get a bigger hammer. I see this all the time in couples that come in. You know, one person will state their side of the situation, and then the other person will state their side of the situation, and the, second, the first person will state their side of the situation a little bit louder, and the second person will state their side a little bit louder, and go back to the first person, and they'll state the same thing a little bit louder, and then throw in some insult about their mother, and so on. Okay? okay, so then you just keep doing that long enough, and it becomes automatic. Somebody says something, and then bang, you go into it. I was I uh, was a student director in a play one time, and, and it was the play was Arsenic and Old Lace. And at the end of one act, there is a certain there's a prompt that is almost the same prompt that is at the end of another act. And so what happened was the actor said the correct line, and the other actor came back with the line from one act away. And the other actor gave the next line from the act that far away. We skipped an act. <laughs> and nobody noticed it but the audience, of course. But all the rest of us were like, we were so used to it, you know, this line and this line and this line. I looked at my watch and went, we have a half hour to go and no play. What happened? That's what happened. Okay? And you can do, you get into this kind of fight, you know, you think you have an hour before the guests show up, so you're having this fight, and then you find out they're coming in ten minutes, you can have that fight in ten minutes. You just speed it up, because you know each other's lines. <laughs> in fact, I've done this with couples where a couple will come in and I'll say, so what's the problem? They start having this fight that they've had, you know, forever, and I'll say, just, let's try something. Stand up, change places. Okay? Now I say to her, I want you to be him. And you be her. Okay? Go. And they start doing the fight, and they know each other's lines. <laughs> now, about three minutes later, they go, you have been listening. Yeah, I have been. But you were wrong. Oh, they start to fight up again. 
Okay, then the next level of conflict is when you, the things that you used to see in the person as assets, now you see as liabilities. So, uh, you come in and you say, um, you know, what did you first like about this woman that you married? Oh, well, geez, that's hard to remember back that far. Um, well, she was so carefree, you know, just fun-loving. Mm-hmm. How is she now? Oh, she's totally irresponsible. She just doesn't, you know, just flies off the handle, does anything she wants, anytime. And I turned to him, to her, and I said, what did you like about him? He was so responsible, you know, really mature and had a seriousness about him that I really was attracted to, you know. He was saving money, you know, planning ahead. Huh? What, what do you think of him now? God, that guy's a tightwad. He never wants to have any fun. Sounds like the same people to me. You've just framed it a little differently. Okay, now the only disclosures are hostile. No? So you come in, hi honey, what do you mean by that? <laughs> so now the power struggle isn't let's the two of us work together. Now it's life and death. Now it's I'm not going to lose this one. Everything about the relationship is work, and so you start wondering, why bother? There's a lack of self-focus. You become an expert on the other person. All the couples that come in to see me, they come in and they're an expert on how the other person should change, and that would make it better. And there's a bitterness. And when they go to therapy, what they want is the therapist to hold the partner down while they kick them. The final stage is hopelessness, is that when what they think about is, is separating. And that really, when they come to see me, they're just looking for me to say, it's over. What I often say is, it's clear to me that you want to end this marriage. And then there's this silence. And I say, what I don't know yet is if you want a different marriage with the same spouse. That's a big difference. It's not all or nothing. Okay, now, these attachment styles, how stable are they? Well, they're very stable. They're stable because they're learned very early in life and that they've become habitual, automatic, outside of your conscious awareness, and that they often give a great deal of satisfaction. And so it's hard to change. I was just talking to somebody who came in, and he told me how good it felt to put his wife down in public. He, he just said, oh, that felt good. Because he had this resentment, and it was bubbling away at him, and he saw a chance to get in a cheap shot, and he used it. And he got some relief. That makes it hard to change that. It would be hard to bite his tongue and to not say it because he wouldn't get that relief. But that's, that's what recovery from alcoholism is, right? Instead of having a drink and feeling good now and paying for it later, you don't take the drink, feel bad now, and feel better later. Sometimes a long time later. So you got to be patient. The other thing is that you may not know options. You may not know what you could do instead of that. And that's what going to meetings is, is you get a new model. 
You get to interact with people differently. That's what having a sponsor is. It's a new attachment style. You think about if you get a sponsor that's available, warm, and responsive, that's new information, and that can challenge your model about how people are, if you're willing to let that in. Okay, so how I want you to start putting this together is your attachment style will affect your adult relationships because a romantic relationship between two adults is similar to that of a child and a caregiver in that both involve long-term affectional bonds which lead to distress when you're apart. That's called separation protest. It uh, provides comfort and security. That's called a secure base. A desire to be near the person, particularly in times of distress. And the person is not seen as interchangeable with others. And people, people who don't understand the relationship between humans and companion animals, otherwise known as pets, is that they don't get it that you can form attachment with pets so that if your dog dies, just getting another dog the next day doesn't take care of it. A German shepherd isn't a German shepherd, isn't a German shepherd. It was that German shepherd. Okay. The same thing is true with an attachment relationship. If you have an attachment relationship, then it is not interchangeable. Okay. We'll keep talking about about the unconscious because that's what makes it so hard to uh, change. I mean, if, if it just took a one-time insight, I'd be out of business, right? You know, you, you do something, you go, oh, that didn't work. I won't do that one again. Well, it doesn't work that way. You try it again. Okay, so this is the way, this is the way of looking at um, a relationship, okay? The perception from your senses is coming in. And the first thing you determine, is this novel? Have I ever seen this before? Or is it familiar? And when you watch an infant, they're having to figure that out every day. Okay, so the kids lay in there, and all of a sudden this weird thing comes into their view, and they go, whoa. Well, after a while, they figure out, oh, I've seen that before. It's attached to me. It is me. So then now, now when you wake up in the morning, and you, your hand comes into your sight, you don't go, oh, my God, because you've got that one figured out. Okay? See, I mean, see how useful pattern recognition is? Is You don't want to wake up every single day and like and look in the mirror and go, oh my God, what is that? You want to know, that's me. Okay, i, I got other things I can think about now because i got that one figured out. <laughs> All right, so then you figure out, is this me or not me? And is it a human or is it an object? Is it, is it a child or an adult? Have I seen this kind of thing before? Okay, I think it, it looks to be an adult to me. Is it male or female? And, I, you know, and boy, I, I watch kids, you know, like when I have an earring in and a beard, the kids like, you can see them going back and forth, back and forth. Uh, boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl, they can't figure it out. Okay, so I figured out that this is an adult, a male. Okay, and then what do you do? Well, you've already, you figured that out instantly, right? You looked at me, your unconscious went through all of that, and you figured out, okay, adult male. Now, what you did is you go back to your file that's adult male, and guess who is the prototype? Your father. Okay? Now, if you had a warm, gentle, supportive, nurturing father, you're going to tend to think I'm that way. And so, you're going to see me as safe, 
I'm not going to be dangerous. Okay, but if you had a punitive, um, shaming, violent father, you're going to see me as dangerous, and then you got to decide what you're going to do. Are you going to try? Are you going to submit to me, or are you going to try and dominate me? Okay, and all of this is happening outside of your awareness. You know, when you see somebody who comes into a meeting and you instantly like them or instantly hate them, that's this. They remind you of somebody. That's pattern recognition. Now, the trouble with that is your model might be incorrect. I might not be like that person. And then if, But if you assume that I am, you will behave as if I am without giving it a chance. Okay, so what you have to start doing is to start paying attention to doing this. Make it conscious. I'll give you an example of that. Is um, <clears throat> I um, was dating this woman, and we moved in together, and uh, I came home, and she said, how was your day? I thought that was great. We had a nice little conversation. Next day I came home, she was already home, she said, what's new? We had a nice little conversation. One day I came home and she said, so, where you been? My entire body went rigid. Oh, now we've been together a week, and you're telling me what to do. She says, what? Oh, oh, and you're going to play dumb about it, too. (laughs) No, 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 I know this one, I'm not going to play. Okay. And the next day I come back and she says, how's it going? I thought, oh, good. She's backed off. <laughs> A few more days of how you doing, what's new, how's it going, blah, blah. She stumbles on, so where you been? We're back to that. <laughs> you know, I, I thought I made it really clear that you can't tell me what to do. You know, we live together, that's fine, but you cannot tell me what I can do and can't do after work. She says, I don't intend to. Don't pull that, I don't know what I'm doing stuff, because I know what you're doing. Okay? So I go and I tell a friend of mine, you know, this is great living with, with her, except once in a while, she turns into this lunatic, controlling bitch. <laughs> out of nowhere. And he says, are we talking, are you still living with that same woman? I said, yeah. He says, man, I don't see it. Ah, see, that's it. She never does it in front of anybody. That's part of the plan, see. Well, so he said, you know, I just don't believe it. Because I've known her for I don't believe that's what's going on. Uh-oh. Now, this is information that doesn't fit my model. Now, am I going to blow him off and say, well, then you're an idiot. Or do I say, wait a minute, maybe, theoretically, it could be possible that I could be wrong. I don't like that idea, but it's theoretically possible. So I go back here, and I say, what does this remind me of? That I'm having such a big reaction. And what it reminds me of is having a mother who did, who did tell me I had to come home right after school because she didn't like living in that town, and she wanted somebody to entertain her. So I was having the right fight with the wrong person. So the next time I came home and the woman said, so where you been? I tensed up because it was automatic, but I made it conscious and I said, so what you mean is how was my day? Yeah, fine. 
Because she's probably lying, right? Because we really know women are controlling bitches. We know that. We all know that, okay? Because that my model of the world is the correct model of the world, okay? And then I say, fine. She says, oh, I'm glad to hear that. Well, this does not fit lunatic controlling bitch. So, is she just lying? She's just going to, you know, lure me into trusting her and nail me later? Or is my model possibly faulty? Okay. All right, so we've been talking about attachment. Let's figure out who you're attached to. Because you can be attached to more than one person. You can have a hierarchy. And you can be securely attached to one person and insecurely attached to another. So these, these are on your handout. These are the questions you ask yourself. These are the questions that you ask. With whom do you like to spend time? Whom do you miss most during separations? On whom do you believe you can almost always count? To whom do you turn for comfort when you're feeling down? And the more of those you answer, the more attached you are to that person, the more important they are to you. Now, to have all of those in an adult-to-adult relationship normally takes two years, which people hate to hear. They want to do it in two weeks. But you can't do that. Because part of what you're doing is repetition. I'd like you to think about is, you know, your model, which, which model do you have? Are you secure? Are you insecure? What? And based on this, who are you attached to? Because here are the tasks for a primary relationship. And in order to accomplish these tasks, you have to be attached to the person. The first one is to learn to separate from your family of origin. So what happens is you and your partner leave your families of origin and you come together and create a new version. And part of what the early conflict is about is whose way are we going to do it. And let me tell you, the people that, that it works out, that the people I don't get to ever see, Okay. Nobody ever comes to me and says, well, we just thought we'd drop in and tell you how great our marriage is going. Okay. <laughs> the people I never see are the people that have a win-win mentality. Okay. My, my wife and I went to the, uh, we were having a house built and we went to, we had drawn this crude little blueprint out and given it to this architect to draw out. And so he drew it out and we were looking at it. And I said, oh, you know, I think we ought to rotate the bathroom about, you know, 90 degrees. And my wife said, oh, I don't know. I said, you don't like that? And she said, no. I said, okay, well, let's not do that then. Um, how about, uh, you know, how about if we move this over here? And she goes, oh, I don't like that as much. Well, how about if we do this over that? No, I don't like it. Well, how about this? Oh, that works. And I look up at the architect's scowling at us. And I thought he was mad because we were messing with his blueprint. And I said, well, it is our house, right? And he said, oh, yeah, you can do anything you want. He said, but I make my living because people make their dream house every five years. Because what they do is they don't do what you're doing. Is that you say, look, I want the bathroom this way. That's the way we're going to do it. So that means she insists that she does the kitchen her way. So you end up with a house that neither of you like. So then you come back in five years and we make another one. He says, you're going to be happy for the rest of your life in this house. How am I supposed to make a living? Okay? So that if she didn't like it, 
that was good enough for me because I wanted her to like that house and she wanted me to like the house. Okay, emotional nurturance. But imagine if you're avoidant, you don't know how to do that. Being a team, okay, which means you have to have be playing the same game, right? It just doesn't work very good to have a rugby player and a croquet player on the same field at the same time because you're just no one's going to have any fun. You have to be at least playing the same game. Which leads us to shared interests and having fun. So one of the questions I ask the couples that come to see me is, if you just met this person and you were single, would you want to go out with them? You have to learn to have safe conflict. Having conflict isn't the problem. It's having destructive conflict. In fact, when I have couples that come to see me and I say, how did your parents fight? And they say, oh, they never fought. I say, oh, that's half the problem. You never got to see how to resolve conflict. You just avoided it. Now, one of the things that happens is people talk about brutal honesty. Well, brutal honesty is still brutal. There are things, you can tell somebody something that's true, but that doesn't make it useful. So that is one of the things to take into consideration. So, um, I remember I had a couple who came in and that they had each had affairs. And so they decided in order to be completely open and honest with each other, they would tell each other about the affairs. And they started giving each other information that was not useful, although it was true. So, instead of just saying, yes, I had an affair, and it's over now, and I've committed to this relationship, and I won't do it again, she said, well, yes, and it was with your boss, and he has a penis that's bigger than yours. <laughs> now, all of that information was true. None of it was any use to anybody. Okay? Now, I don't know if she thought she was just, you know, being open and honest, or if she thought, oh, this is a great way to get him and I can say, well, I was just being honest. But that's going to come up to haunt her, right? If you have a winner and a loser, sooner or later, the loser is going to come back and want to win. If you can't have two winners, you got two losers. So you have to learn to cope efficiently with, with problems. You have to learn to be a couple, to have togetherness. Which oftentimes, as soon as people have kids, they stop being a couple. And now they're just parents. You also have to learn how to be an individual. You have to be part of a couple, but you also have to be an individual. You don't give yourself away, because then you've got nothing left. And you have to have shared values and goals. And what I'm amazed by is how often people just assume that they have the same values and goals. If, I, if you think about a marriage contract is that people do a better job of going in and negotiating a car loan than they do their relationships. Okay? Just imagine if you went in and said, Hi, I'm here to get a car I'm gonna buy a car and the banker said, Oh that's great, we'd love to loan you the money. Okay, well I'll make the usual payments at the usual rate and spend the usual amount of money. Okay? That's great. Okay, shake on it. That's bad business, right? You want to know how much money, at what interest rate, when is it due, and all of that. But I see couples that will say things like, well, our goals are we want to have a good sex life. Oh, that's great. Whatever that means, 
Okay? And you ask him, well, what exactly does that mean? Well, you know, sex every day, one of them says. The other one goes, what? <laughs> you got to be kidding me. I want a good sex life. I don't want to be a sex fiend. Or the, the one that really amazes me is the number of children. Well, we want to have a family, huh? What exactly is a family? You know, and he says, you know, seven kids. And she goes, oh, my God, you got to be kidding me. I'm talking about two kids. Well, is that something you compromise on after the fact? Or would you want to know that ahead of time? Now, these things are not compartmentalized. They affect all aspects of the relationship. I had a, a couple that came in. They had been married four years. And they had fought nonstop. And they were going to be finally, all the kids were raised, and they were going to get a divorce because they were sick of it. And so I said, I'd like you to think about what your marriage contract was and come back another session. So they did that. They came back, and I said, oh, I turned to the husband, and I said, tell me what your marriage contract was. He said, okay, I was in a foxhole, and artillery shells were raining down on me. And I had spent most of my life drunk in with prostitutes and smoking and cursing. And so I'm huddled in the, this tiny little hole with these explosives all around me, and I got down on my hands and knees, and I said, God, if you get me out of this one, I will stop whoring around, I will stop drinking, I will stop smoking, I will stop cursing, I will go back after the war is over, I will marry a good girl, I will have good Christian children, I will become a deacon. Just get me out of this. And so the war gets over. He gets on a ship. He comes back to America. He gets on a train. He goes back to his hometown. And he knocks on the door of his high school sweetheart. And he says, will you marry me? She says, yes. Now, they've just negotiated a marriage contract. So that now what he has just said to her is, will you be my pure, saintly mother of my Christian children and a model to the community? Okay, That's what he's just asked, and she has said yes to him. Well, what he doesn't know and what she knows is that while he was in the war, she was sitting in this town reading the papers and thinking, you know, these guys are having an exciting life. They're off sea in Paris and Berlin, and they're having a good old time getting drunk and going to whorehouses, and I'm sitting here doing nothing. So when this war is over, I'm going to go out, and I'm going to find me a wild man. I'm going to find me a guy who knows how to party. Ding dong. He opens the door. He's back from the war. He had sent letters to his friends talking about what he was doing. This is perfect. A wild man says... Will you marry me, have wild sex, drink all the time, and just generally tear things up? And so she, of course, says, yes. Okay? So the first night, they get married. He goes into the marital bedroom. He kneels down, thanks God for saving his life, says, I promised you that I would do this, I will do this. I pray that my new wife becomes impregnated with a child so that we can raise them in the Christian tradition and be a good role model so that I can fulfill my sacred promise to you. His wife kicks the door open, dressed in this outfit from Fredericks of Hollywood, and is ready to hang from the chandelier. Okay? So they don't talk about this 
they just fight with each other. Why aren't you doing what you promised? Okay? So now it's time to go on vacation. He wants to visit the grottos of the Midwest. <laughs> she wants to go to Las Vegas. Okay? It's time to buy a new car. Let's get a minivan. No, we're getting a red convertible. Okay? It's the same fight, right? It's the same fight in every arena. But they don't ever talk about it. They thought they had this agreement. I have no idea when I'm supposed to stop. When is it? 9.45? Okay, no problem. See, I usually have a, use a calendar to decide when it's time to stop, so I can go on forever. Okay. So what I want you to think about is, what is the contract that you thought you had agreed to? And, and what is your partner doing that you think violates that contract so you can go tell them? Okay, now we're going to talk about shame. An alcoholic is somebody whose life revolves around alcohol. That, that is their higher power. Okay? Now, if you just take alcohol out of their life, what you end up with is somebody who switches addictions. So you get somebody who, you know, weighed uh, 100 pounds when they came into AA. Three months later, they get their three-month medallion in AA, but they weigh 500 pounds. Okay? So now they're in AA and Overeaters Anonymous, and so then they come back for their six-month medallion in AA, and they don't weigh 500 pounds anymore, but they don't have any money to put in the hat because they're gambling all the time. Okay? So they either switch addictions, or you get a dry drunk which is basically somebody whose shame is not being numbed out by alcohol or they're not getting high anymore. So that when you're high, you don't care. And, and when you're numb, you don't care. So what the 12-step program is, is a shame reduction program. A lot of people think that people are ashamed because they're alcoholics. That just, to me, that, that's just added to. They felt ashamed beforehand, and that just adds to it. Okay, well then you've got the Al-Anon person whose life revolves around the alcoholic, and their life is focused on this person. They're either busy paying attention to that person so they can't pay attention to themselves, or once in a while they manage to give the illusion of control, and that gets them high. Okay. I, I always compare living with an alcoholic to those those baby seats in cars that have the steering wheel. You know, the baby turns the wheel to the left, and sometimes the car goes to the left, but it has nothing to do with that action. Okay. But that doesn't fit the person's model. They go, see, I was right all along. It is a nail. I just need a bigger hammer. Okay, so if you take alcohol out of this person's life without treating the shame, they end up a dry drunk or switching addictions. If you, if this person starts to sober up and start to like themselves, this person gets scared because they're ashamed of themselves too. They were ashamed of themselves before they hooked up with this person. People find the same level of shame. Okay, and so this is where you get this person helping this person to relapse. Okay. So one time, a friend of mine called me up and he said, look, I'm really sick. Would you come uh, sub for me at work? Um, 
I'm doing this group for spouses of, of alcoholics who are in treatment. So I said, oh, sure, I can do that. So I show up, and there's this group of uh, people sitting around, and they're starting to talk. And they say, uh, one of them says, well, I just want to announce that this is my, my last uh, session. You know, my partner's getting out, and so I won't be coming back anymore. And I said, oh, are you going to do something to celebrate uh, your partner getting out of treatment? Oh, yeah. So what are you going to do? Oh, we're going to have a kegger. <laughs> Which caught my attention. You know? <laughs> I said, geez, I haven't been out of being a chemical dependency counselor that long that I think it's changed that much. Uh, does, does that seem weird to any of the rest of you? You know, and they all went, no. No, that doesn't seem weird. I said, well, it seems weird to me. Well, this person was afraid that if their alcoholic started liking himself, that he was going to end up dumping her because she didn't think she had much to offer. Now, remember that Al-Anon was formed by the spouses of recovering alcoholics. See, they, what, what Lois and everybody else believed is, you know, if Bill and Bob just sober up, I'll be fine. Guess what? Bill and Bob sobered up, and Lois was as nuts as ever. Okay? That's the reason Al-Anon came, came along. Okay, so that what the 12-step program does is it takes shame-based people and helps them cope with that so that they can be guilt-based people. The difference between shame and guilt is shame is that you, when you feel bad, when you feel ashamed, you think you're a bad person. And then you want to withdraw from people. When you feel guilty, you think you've done a bad thing, and then you want to seek people out and make amends. So the first three steps are all about accepting that it wasn't your fault, but now you can do something about it. The fourth step helps you look at your relationship with yourself. Six and seven helps you reduce the shame so that you're now able to go feel guilty instead of ashamed when you make amends so that you can forgive yourself. So then you've got 10, 11, and 12 as a maintenance program so that you stay guilt-based instead of shame-based. I mean, if you go to meetings and you see those bumper stickers that say, screw guilt, they are mistaken. That is what got you there. Do not get rid of guilt. That's a sociopath. They can do anything and not feel guilty. You want to feel guilty when you do a bad thing so that you will make amends. You don't want to feel shameful because that will just isolate you from people. Now, what happens when someone's feeling ashamed, if they don't withdraw, they lash out. And that's what rage is. Is they want you to feel as bad about yourself as they feel about themselves. And so you get these two shameful people lashing out at each other and withdrawing and lashing out at each other. So what do you do about it? Okay, 10th step. Are you being the kind of spouse you want to be? Become an expert on you, not an expert on the other person. In the big book it says, as each member of a resentful family begins to see his shortcomings and admits them to others, he lays a basis for helpful discussion. These family talks will be constructive if they can be carried on without heated arguments, self-pity, self-justification, or resentful criticism. In other words, you focus on yourself. Little by little, mother and children will see they ask too much, and father will see he gives too little. Giving rather than getting will become the guiding principle. 
okay? So that you don't do somebody else's inventory, you do your own. Okay, so let me give you an example of that in action. Because it's, it's, it's really easy to say, it's another thing to do it. Like I said, the people with the, uh, on the tape are going to that. Okay, my wife and I had this fight years ago. Where she would say, you never bring me flowers. Okay? And then I would say, I bring you flowers. I brought you flowers five years ago. I still have the receipt to prove it. Okay? Now, was that, that was true, right? Was it constructive? No. Because really what she was saying was not, I never, you never bring me flowers, because that's not true. What she was saying is, you don't bring flowers as often as I would like you to bring flowers. But see, if she had said it that way, then she would have been very vulnerable, and she was afraid to do that. And I could have responded that way. I could have said, so what you mean is you're sad and hurt and angry because you want me to show my affection in terms of bringing flowers, but then I would be vulnerable, and it's easier just to deflect it by saying, well, yeah, but I bring flowers. Okay? So we were having this ongoing fight where she'd say, you, uh, uh, you never bring me flowers. Yes, I do. I brought you flowers last year. And she'd say, it wasn't last year. It was 18 months ago. And I'd say, no, it wasn't. And we'd fight about that. And she'd say, okay, okay. Okay, so you bring me flowers, but uh, not enough. And I'd say, well, I'd bring you flowers if you quit nagging. <laughs> well, maybe I'd quit nagging if you'd bring flowers. <laughs> Well, we won't know because you never quit nagging enough to find out. Well, I would quit nagging if you would just get off your ass and bring some flowers once in a while. Okay? Now, both of us are right. Both of us are completely right. If this woman would just back off long enough, I'm sure I would bring flowers. And I'm an expert on this. I could tell that this was the problem, was that she just wouldn't shut up. Okay? Well, I started thinking about this, and I thought to myself, I don't like this because I used to pride myself on being a romantic guy. I skipped high school one day, and I went out and I spent the entire day picking wildflowers in the forest, and I had bribed my girlfriend's sister to leave her... Um, bedroom window unlocked so that I could come in and put these thousands of flowers in my girlfriend's bedroom, every square inch. And then I had a cassette tape of love songs that when she opened the door, it clicked on. Okay? I loved that. I just ate that stuff up, you know? Every one of her desks, she had assigned seats in high school, arose inside of it one day. Bribed the teachers to tell me which which um, desks, got the janitor to let me in in the night so I could do this. Okay, And this is a guy who's not bringing his wife flowers. <laughs> so I'm driving home one day, and I see this sign that says, Iris is on sale, which is my wife's favorite flower. So I thought, I'll buy her some flowers. So I pull in, I buy her some flowers. I'm liking this. I'm proud. I'm glad. And I'm driving home. The closer I get home, I don't know if this was such a good idea. You know, I'll... I bring her flowers. You know, she's going to think she won. <laughs> she figures she wins on this. Well, you know, it's the domino theory. <laughs> the next thing you know, the commies are coming in to Independence Hall. You've got, you've got to draw the line somewhere. But I'm too cheap to get rid of the flowers. Okay? So now I have a choice here. I have the flowers. 
I can do it differently. Okay, I, back to that model. I can think, I can do this differently. And I make a feeble attempt. I walk in, and I hand her the flowers, and I say, beer, these are on sale. <laughs> At that point, she could have done it differently, right? She could have said, thank you, I'm sure that was very difficult for you. I really appreciate it, and I will not forget it, right? She could have. <laughs> but then that wouldn't have fit her model. What she said was, was that so hard? <laughs> and I think to myself, mark this day down because that's the last flowers you'll ever see. Okay? I didn't say it, but I thought it. You better make sure you die first because the only time you're getting flowers from me is at your funeral. But then I decided, no, I am not going to let her decide how romantic a guy I am. I'll be as romantic as I want to be and she can't stop me. And so the next week, I bought her some more flowers. And I walked in, and I said, I saw these, and I thought of you, and I want you to have them. Much better, I would say, than the first time. I've been practicing, you know, driving home, trying the different ones out. Okay, now, choice point for her, right? This information doesn't fit her model. She can either question the model, or she has to reject the information. She says, now what have you done? <laughs> Flowers two times in two weeks. What have you done? Now I, have a ch now, I have a choice at that point, right? I can say, you see, I tried, and what did it get me? I'm done. Forget it. But I didn't. I went out and I bought her some more flowers. And I came back and I said, every time I see flowers like this, I think of you, and it makes my heart warm. She didn't know what to say. You know, she was just dumbfounded. She was confused. She couldn't reject the information because I just kept hammering her with it. So she had to change the model. And what happened was she started remembering to push the drawers all the way in. <laughs> I didn't ask her, but she somehow started to remember to do that for some reason. Okay, so now that's a great story because I'm the hero in it, right? I can tell her the stories where she was the hero because you both have to do it. That's what being a team is. If you have to be willing to do the scary thing, to be vulnerable, and to keep doing it even though it doesn't work at first. Okay, you have to keep doing it. Let me tell you, the first time I went skydiving, it was terrifying. The second time I went skydiving, it was terrifying. Okay? It doesn't take just one time to change your idea that throwing yourself out of an airplane is a risky thing. Okay? But it was much easier, really, emotionally, than coming home the second time with the flowers. <laughs> it was much less personal. It wasn't somebody that I really cared about and wanted to accept me. She was an attachment object. I wanted her to be a safe person. I wanted to be me with her. And I was terrified that she wouldn't allow it. Okay, your fourth and fifth step inventory, you can use that and think about what are your strengths 
and what are your liabilities that you bring to this relationship. And that character defects are character traits taken to extremes. Like honesty. Would you agree that honesty is a value that most people in the program hold pretty dear? Okay. And lack of honesty is called dishonesty or lying. What's too much honesty? Tactlessness. Okay? So you would you would want to find that middle ground where you're honest but you're not tactless and that you're not lying. Now, if you're in a relationship that has a lot of conflict, what I'd invite you to do is write down what the conflicts are and start looking for themes. Remember that couple I told you about, the, the one in the war? That the fight was always about, are we going to be wild or are we going to be straight and narrow? And then what happens when you start to get rigid about the fight is that you say things like, it's always this way. And he never does this. And so what you can do is to start to look at times that it was different. The time that they didn't say it that way. That gives you some hope that it can be different. Now, one of the things you can consider is what are the costs of the way you're behaving in this relationship? The costs are what you can't do that you want to do. It's also what you have to do that you don't want to do. And then the other thing to look at, this is a lot harder, is look at the payoffs for behaving the way you are. What is it that you get to do that you want to do? And what is it that you don't have to do that you don't want to do? Every role has costs and payoffs. Frequently, when people come from having gone through alcoholism treatment, they come to see me, they're really skilled at identifying the costs for the role of being an alcoholic. What they have trouble noticing is that there are payoffs as well. Like one of the payoffs in this one man's family, because he was the alcoholic, is he could say anything he wanted to, and no one would take him seriously. So he could insult his rich uncle, which everybody was terrified of, and everybody would just laugh it off as well, well, he's drunk. Okay? So he got to say anything he wanted to. Now, of course, the, the cost for that was nobody took him seriously, no matter what he said. But th that was a goodie that he got. Plus, since he was an irresponsible alcoholic, he never, no one expected him to be responsible. So like when the check came, they divided up and didn't count him. They just split it, his, his meal, with the rest of them. They never even asked him. They just did it. Well, so that's a payoff. Of course, the cost of that is that you don't have any self-respect. And that's really what the first step is. Does the cost outweigh the payoff? Is it worse to keep going like this than it is to change? Because change is going to be scary. Okay. So let's go back. Given all of this, is that if you want to have a secure attachment with somebody, you have to find out, number one, if you're able to do these things, and if the person that you want to be attached to is available to be attached to. 
Basically, my job is I deliver bad news. That's what I get paid to do. I, I do it in fancy ways, but basically that's what I do. People come to me and I give them bad news. Okay, so I, I said uh, to this woman today, I said, what is it that you want? And she said, I want my, my um, father to tell me that he loves me and he's proud of me. In effect, she wants to be attached to him. And I said, has he ever said that to anyone that you know of? She said, no. I said, has, you know, when you got your college degree, did he say it? No. When you went to treatment and got sober, did he say it? No. When you got married, did he say it? No. I said, well, guess what? You can't have what you want. What's your second choice? Now, that's bad news, isn't it? But that's reality in that situation. So it's better to go someplace where the person is available. And so you can actually ask people this. I mean, you don't have to use these fancy terms, but I think that's part of what setting up a sponsor relationship is, is, you know, can I spend time with you? You Can we go out for coffee after the meeting? Can I call you when I'm feeling down any time? One of the things that, that I could feel my shame shrinking was one time I was in, I was on a trip several time zones away from where I live, and I called my sponsor, Collect, in the middle of the night and talked for two and a half hours about nothing. And that was the most important thing he did. Because that action was saying to to me, you matter to me. You're in pain. I can't fix that, but I can be with you in that pain. That's making attachment available. And what happens when you go to a meeting and you say, hi, my name is? What do people say back? Your name. They greet you. They don't go, oh my God, you're a what? That's how it works, is that you are accepted. And sometimes it's easier to to attach to a group before you can attach to an individual. Now, the blocks to that is this automatic thinking. You have to You have to stop and ask yourself, what is my model and does my model fit reality? This reality. Or am I having the right fight with the wrong person? Am I using obsolete defense mechanisms? I had a client today who I could tell wanted to cry, but she kept looking away from me and covering her face. And I said, what are you telling yourself that you don't cry? And she said, I'm telling myself that you'll think I'm a hysterical female. And I said, okay, now I've known you now for six months. Have I ever said or done anything to tell you not to cry? And she said, no, I can't think of anything. And I said, well, then who are you confusing me with? And she said, well, my dad always told me when I cried that I was a hysterical female. And I said, I'm not your dad. Maybe it's not like, duh, but I mean, (laughs) according to this, I am, right? I'm a male adult authority figure. And so, of course, given her model, I am going to behave that way. Of course I am. 
she thinks. And when I don't, then she either has to change her model or she has to discount the information. So one thing she said was, oh, well, that's what I pay you for. So she could discount it. What I'm hoping is she'll keep coming back enough times that she'll begin to question the model and say, you know, I think there's more to this relationship than that. See, that's the great thing about about going to a self-help group is you can't use that excuse. So where you have to start getting at it is right in this area here. Is you have to start saying, what's my model for male relationships? What's my model for female relationships? And does this current relationship fit that model or doesn't it? Okay, so when you figured out what, what kind of attachment you have, and let me tell you that the majority of the people in this room are not secure. You wouldn't be a part of this organization if you were. Okay? Now, you may end up that way, but, you know, this takes a lot of work. So it's probably more that you're more like avoidant or anxious, ambivalent. So what you're going to need to do is find attachment figures that behave this way. So when you go into a meeting, you want to look for people who are available, warm, and responsive so that you can attach to them so that you can learn all of these lessons that we talked about so you can learn to do these things. So you can learn to explore so that you can acknowledge your distress and seek comfort so that you can play. Whenever I refer somebody to to a 12-step group and they come back and I say, did anybody cry at the meeting? Yep. Okay, that's a good sign. Did anybody laugh at the meeting? Yes, that's a good sign. If you do only one or the other, something's out of balance there. Now, the task then is open and effective communication, the stuff down here, which is going to be hard because when you first do it, you're going to assume that you're going to be met with this old model. So you have to you have to find the right place to do it in. And that you have to pay attention to your behavior rather than the other people's behavior. Let me give you an example. It is uh, years ago, I went to a meeting and my dog had died that day. And I walked in and uh, people said, oh, how are you doing? I said, oh, I'm not doing so good. My, my dog died. And I said, oh, that's too bad. And I thought, you heartless. This is a support group, supposedly. No, I didn't say it out loud. But what I didn't realize, I got exactly what I deserved, right? Is I didn't imply that I was in pain very much. I implied it was kind of an inconvenience. And so that's what I got back, was that level of comforting. Well, a few years go by, I have another dog, and it dies. And I walk back in, something must be happening. Because as soon as I walk in, people say, what's wrong? It was on my face. They could see that I was in pain. I had learned to soften up and to not withhold that. And I said, I'm really, really sad. My dog died. So you can even hear it in my voice, right? It's, it, I said it differently. Okay? And what did I get back? People said, oh, I'm sad to hear that. They put their arms around me, and we talked about it. Okay? I got exactly what I deserved again. Is I put out, I made myself available, and they met with me. They were available for attachment. That helped change my model. Okay, now, got one last thing here. Um, we were talking about 
your attachment figures and automatic thinking, 80% of the people in America use he when talking about God. So when you say he, you go back in your file and you look up adult male and you access father and then you apply that model to your relationship with God. So if you had a neglectful father, you're going to think of God as not around. If you had an abusive, punitive, dangerous father, you're going to think that God is dangerous and jealous and punitive. If you had a supportive, kind, nurturing father, somebody mentions the concept of God, you go, cool, that's great, an all-powerful, knowing, wonderful, supportive being, I like it. So there, again, that's back to that automatic thinking. So when you hear God, you go, you go not only to the God file and pull out that model, you also pull out the dad file. And so, oftentimes, when I see people having struggles with the second and third step, they're having the right fight with the wrong person. They're fighting with God because they're projecting onto God that God is going to be just like their father was. And so you have to start thinking differently. And that's what going to meetings can be about. You can start thinking is, you know, when I screw up, my sponsor doesn't beat me up. Maybe God could be at least as nice as my sponsor. Okay. So, when you're thinking about your relationship with your higher power, you can again use these attachment styles. Are you avoidant of God? Are you anxious and ambivalent? Or are you secure? Because if you're secure, then you can have this open, effective communication. And one of, the, one of the ways you can tell if you have a secure relationship with anybody is you can express anger appropriately and you're not afraid you're going to get abandoned. The, um, <clears throat> my favorite example of that is I was doing a, a workshop on shame in the 12 steps and a woman came up to see me. <clears throat> excuse me. She wouldn't look at me when she came up to talk to me. And she wasn't groomed very well. And she wasn't dressed very nicely. And she was underemployed. And she was in crummy relationships. And she told me this horrible life story. And she said she was having trouble with her spirituality. And I said, well, no wonder. You must be pissed at God. And she went, shh. I'm in enough trouble without you saying that. And I said, well, you, you, you don't have an open, honest relationship with God. You're pissed at God. And you don't talk about it. You go do a little, you know, ritualized prayer, our father or something. But you don't get in there and really have... You know, it says conscious contact, thoughtful contact. You don't go and be who you are. So you have a puny relationship. No wonder it isn't working. Oh, I could never do that, she says. So, well, that's my advice. I'm, I'm a troublemaker. Okay. So, a few years later, I'm doing the same talk, and this woman, you know, comes up to me, standing tall, looks me in the eye, dressed nice, attractive-looking woman. She says, you remember that woman that you talked to a few years back? I said, oh yeah, whatever happened to her? Do you know her? Know her? I am her. I said, well, what happened? I mean, you, you don't look like the same person. She said, well, actually, I took your advice. She said, I went out walking after uh, your talk, and I was kind of looking at the ground, and I was saying that, well, God, this guy said that, you know, maybe that I might be just a little bit angry, not that I'm saying that, but I'm saying that he said that. And that if I was angry, and I'm not saying that I am, but if I was, it would be about these 
inconveniences, like when I got raped that time, and you know, and you know, she goes on with her these horror stories. And as she's talking, it starts to rain, and she thinks this is the perfect ending. Now this is great, you know. I do what I'm told, and like it rained on. Now this is perfect for my life. And now she's getting it's starting to lightning now. So she says, "Oh, okay, I know where this is going." You know, I just say I might even imply that I'm a little bit angry. And what happens? You're going to strike me dead. Well, let me tell you something, buddy. And she just starts rattling off how incredibly furious she is because she figures it's the last thing she's going to say. <laughs> and nothing happens. She gets wet, but she feels great. And she figures that if she can, you know, stand up to God, she can stand up to her boss and her boyfriend and her family and all these other people. And so she starts treating herself with self-respect. She starts saying to herself only things that she would say out loud to somebody that she loves. See, because so many people have a double standard. They say, "You just love thy neighbor as thyself." You know, God forbid that you do that. Right? Treat your neighbor like you treat yourself. Right? You go out to get the paper and you see your neighbor and you say, "Oh, you're fat and you'll never amount to anything." <laughs> no. You go out and you say, "Good morning." Okay? And then you go back in the house and you look in the mirror and you say, "You're fat and you'll never amount to anything." Okay? So she began to talk to herself in a loving way. And how did she learn to do that? She went to meetings, and people talked to her in a loving way. When she couldn't talk to herself in a loving way, that's how you learn to do it. You can't do it alone. Whenever I have people coming to me and they say, "Yeah, I've been going to meetings for a billion years, and I'm still not getting anywhere," I say, "What's the first step?" And they say, "Admitted we were powerless over alcohol," and I say, "Stop right there. I know the problem. We admitted. It's a group effort." That that's what attachment theory says is you learn who you are by the kind of people you hang around. Okay. So if you're caught in a vicious cycle, you need to sit in a loving circle, and that's what going to meetings are. And that's why there, at any given moment there are more people in self-help groups in the world than all of the psychologist's office and all of the uh, mental hospitals in the world combined, because it works. Because it's a place that you can attach and change your model. I hope it was helpful. Thanks for your attention.